Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Michael Brandvold, and as always, I'm joined by Jay Gilbert. How are you doing, Jay? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Not Good to see you. Bad. The kid is back in school. Oh my the gosh, I can't believe back it. In school. What are you going to do with your time? I mean, I I don't It's it's weird. Has it been a year? It's been I think next week will be 1 year since so just things about shut down. Crazy, so. man one uh, I, yeah it's just dumbfounded it's just like wait i i love my kid but i've been with do. my kid every day every for the last day. year every meal and now they're back moment. at school and it's like oh, i get it my god if nothing else you just sit back and listen to the peace and quiet yeah well we're <laughs> we're slowly getting back to that new abnormal and yes uh, I, there's light at the end of the tunnel now, so I hope all of you uh, listening and watching just stay safe, be uh, diligent. We're going to get through this. We will. We're we're closer to the end than we are the beginning. Let's put it that way. At least Finally. in my mind. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Um. Before we get to this week's uh great discussion, just a quick shout out to Hypebot and Bands in Town. Thank you for continuing to support us. And to our sponsors, Banzoogle.com, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. Banzoogle powers the websites for tens of thousands of musicians around the world, from weekend warriors to Grammy winners. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including hosting and a custom domain name. Something we touch on with this week's guest, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and sending newsletters, of course, social media integrations, and amazing live tech support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. So we put together a great little offer here. Head over to bandzoogle.com, sign up, Try it for free for 30 days. Use the promo code at musicbizweekly, all one word, and you'll get 15% off the first year of any subscription. And of course, discmakers.com. We know it's a digital world, but there's still an important role for physical media for today's independent musician. Digital royalty payments are so small that selling products like CDs, vinyl, T-shirts, online and at gigs has become an such an important income generator. For every CD you sell at a gig, you might need roughly 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money, and that's a lot of streams. Our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even t-shirts. So we put together another little cool offer for you. Head over to discmakers.com, place an order for 100 or more CDs, and when you check out, use the promo code FREEBIZ, all one word, and you will save up to $150 in shipping costs. So who's joining us, Jay? We have a fantastic guest this week, Michael. Uh, we have the author of this book, The Straightforward Guide to the Music Biz, uh, a really great resource. He's a, an L.A.-based attorney who actually uh, works with Janet Jackson, um, but he's been a manager, 
Uh, he's an attorney for the music business, and he's written this really great book. His name is Kamal Moo. Yeah, let it roll, and we'll see you at the end. Build a stunning band website in minutes with Bandzoogle. Go to bandzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Today we're joined with Kamal Moo. He's a Los Angeles-based attorney and artist manager, actually, whose clients include Janet Jackson, the Hallmark Channel, several record labels, music publishers, songwriters, and producers. Did I, uh, did I get that right, Kamal? Sounds about right, yep. All right. Thanks for joining us today, man. I mean, uh, you have a book out called The Straightforward Guide to the Music Biz, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, what I love about it is it's only 80 something pages and it's really all the stuff that you need to know, but it's not one of those books we all know the books in the industry, whether it's, you know, the Brayback Brothers or Donald Passman or whoever that everybody seems to have in their library. And those are all great books, but sometimes you just need to get down to the basics of what are these things. So number one, I, I applaud you on that. Uh, how did this come about? Why did you decide that you needed to kind of put this thing together? Well, thanks for saying that. I really, I really appreciate that you like the book. Um, basically, it came down to the fact that I had a lot of clients coming to me and potential clients who were asking me the same questions over and over again. They didn't understand copyright. <laughs> they didn't understand uh, the PROs. They didn't understand just general, you know, basic things about the industry. So I said, you know what? I should write some sort of like introductory book to the business uh, that's just easy, accessible. You know, like you said, you can read it. It's pretty short. You can read it in like one or two days and just really have at least a uh, basic under, <clears throat> excuse me, basic understanding of what, um, you know, what the industry is like and how it's set up and how the contracts work. So you got tired of answering those same questions day in and day. You know what, Michael and I have this too. There are certain questions that you just get all the time. And it's so nice where you can just say, well, you know, I covered that in my book. <laughs> right. Go, go, go read my book and then let's have a call. It'll yeah. be a lot. And, it'll be a lot cheaper for you. <laughs> it, it's so true. I mean, even now I have uh, potential clients reaching out to me who have certain situations that I'm like, well, you should check out my book, honestly, because I talk about a lot of this in there. And then it's like the book's like 15 bucks. So it's like easier than yeah, hiring me to do it you know, for you, which, of course, I wish they I hope they still hire me. But at the yeah. same time, it's like I think it's good to have this baseline level of information, because like you said, then we can have a better conversation about it. Does, does yeah. it does it support? I, you know, because Jay and I have always preached, you know, musicians need to educate themselves, especially in this new music industry. Right. Does it surprise you that you're still running into so many people in this business who don't know the business? Uh, sometimes it is surprising uh, because there'll be people who are actively working in the industry, like as managers or something, and they don't understand certain concepts. Um, but I think that's and, uh, when it comes to musicians, especially, I know a lot of them, they don't really, you know, they want to focus on music and the creative endeavors They're not necessarily hung up on the business legal aspect. <clears throat> and, um, it's just one of those things that like, I it's just not interesting to them. And even though I think it should be, and I think it's a necessity to understand yeah. what's going on. Some people just don't want to take the time. And, you know, I understand yeah. that. You've got a really interesting background, Kamal. I mean, you were an artist manager and your music industry attorney. And typically those are two separate things. It must be really interesting for you. It, it reminds me of a quote from Danny Goldberg where he, when he was an artist manager, he said, 
what do these record labels do all day? And then when he worked for a record label, he's like, well, what do these artist managers do all day? Right. You know, so you're seeing kind of both sides of that. Tell us a little bit about that journey, how you were, have, I mean, were you ever in a band? Did you ever play in a band? And how did you get into artist management and then the legal side of uh, the business? Well, it was a total fluke, honestly. Um, I went to law school, uh, I, I graduated, passed the bar exam. Uh, and then soon after that, about a year after that, my brother's band uh, got offered a record deal. And so he needed a manager. And so I was like, that's perfect. And I was a music industry undergrad at USC. And then I went to Southwestern Law School, studied a lot of entertainment courses. Um, so I had a background in music and I wanted to be in the music industry. So I started managing them. Um, and that was, you know, kind of my foot in the door, honestly, in, in management. And then I did that for a few years till about 2010. Uh, the band broke up. I had other clients as well, but then I sort of got burnt out on managing. Yeah. And that's when I launched my law firm in 2010 with a partner. Um, <clears throat> my partner actually left the law practice altogether. Like he doesn't even practice law anymore. Uh, but, uh, and then I went solo in 2013. But so I sort of sort of managed a little bit during that time, but I kind of phased it out all the way about 2015, 2016. It's great experience to have. Um, oh, yeah. Artist management. I, I work, most of my clients are artist managers and I never want to be in artist management. You have to have a certain kind of uh, skill set and mindset for that because it's, it's everything. You, you have, have a, to be a therapist, right, Michael? You oh, have yeah. to be, you're the guy who gets the phone call at two in the morning. Hey, I don't have my passport and I'm in Sweden at the airport. What do I do? I mean, it's babysitting, it's therapy, it's all sorts. So my hat goes off to you for, for knowing that, but I think it probably makes you better at what you do as a music attorney, right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Because I've been I've been out there on the road. I went on tour with my brother's band. I've been you know I sold merch. Uh, I always say I drove a tour van through a blizzard in Wyoming at four. In you the were morning. at the merch table. You were the guy at the merch table. Oh like... yeah, I did it all with them. You know, and I I kind of I I was the whole package. I, you know, it was just my brother's band and me, and then this other guy who was a roadie for us. And uh, yeah, we just toured the whole country. So I've been out there and I know what the concerns are of musicians. I know the practical aspect of being a musician. So that informs a lot of my, um, the way I approach contracts. I just want them to be as practical as possible. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been helpful in that sense. Or I, I used to say that a lot of lawyers, uh, they would do the deal and just kind of walk away and that was it for them. But I, as a manager, I did the deal and lived with it for a number of years after. So yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. You know, when it comes down to contracts and, and, and legal stuff, what are you seeing as the one or two big things that musicians still seem to not pay attention to when it comes to contracts and, and you know, the, the, the legal aspects? Well, uh, well, one thing I'll say that's sort of related to that, but it's, I think it's really crucial um, is, you know, aside from the contract, which is very important, I always tell people like, look, really what it comes down to is the quality of people you're dealing with on the other side, because I've had situations where artists will sign a contract, the contract is great, but then nothing happens for them. The label just sits and shelves their project. Um, that's, uh, that's one thing I always tell my clients, really evaluate the people you're working with and the enthusiasm and their reputation and if they can you know, achieve success. Um, so that's kind of a threshold question, but then when it comes to actual agreements, you know, there's really two main things I always tell clients you got to look out for is like how much and how long, how much you're getting paid for this contract and how long is it going to last? And those are the two main things they really need to focus on. I mean, there's a lot of different other, of course, other important things, but those are the two main things that are really crucial. I think it's, it's funny you, you met, you yeah. mentioned that because, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of helping 
a friend of mine who's got a band and he got a, a, a labeled mem deal memo sent to them. And the terms were, and I, I serious, the terms were one to three years. Mm. And I was yeah. just like, okay, is it one or is it three? You don't sign for one to three years right. unless there's, Unless there's conditions where you're signing for one year and if these goals are met, then it's a sec second year and a third year. But you don't just sign a deal where somebody says, well, I'm going to take this for one to three years. Who right. makes the decision? I'm like, right. you've got you to nail this down. There's a, that's too vague. Right. I agree. I agree. You need to are, know this stuff and, and that's super important to really pay attention. Are you seeing many different types of deals outside of the standard in quotation marks record deal like are you seeing singles deals where people will come in and say hey this label is offering me you know three singles and then an option for an album you know because it's a more of a streaming world are you look are you hearing more about creative deals like 360 deals where you know artists will share kind of other revenue streams what's that landscape like these days yeah, it is very different now. I mean, like you said, singles deals are really popular because it gives, it's like a tester, you know, you get to test out the artists, see how they do with one to three singles. And then you have the option to pick up for the full EP or album from there. So that is a popular approach for sure uh, for labels that don't want to necessarily commit to a full album up front. Um, yeah. Or yeah, 360 is, is very normal nowadays. I mean, a lot of um, labels will take a piece of merchandise and touring and other things. Uh, usually it'll, it'll be a function of like how much they're giving you on the record royalty side. So for example, the bigger labels, uh, they're going to say, okay, we'll give you like a 15 to 20% royalty on the artist side. Uh, so we're going to take 10 to 15% on your touring and merch and everything else. Some, uh, independent labels, they want it to be, feel more like a partnership. So they'll say, okay, we'll give you 50% royalty on the records, but we also want 50% on the ancillary other income too. And there's a sliding scale on both sides. So they kind yeah. of adjust accordingly. What do you think of those deals? I mean, you're out to protect your client, mm -hmm. right? And I would imagine you, there's no blanket statement. You can't say that this is right for all artists. It's a case by case, I would imagine. What, what, do, what do you advise your independent artists, for example, about these types of deals? Because on the surface, it seems to me that you want someone who the more that they kill, the more that they eat, the better they do, the better you do. Am I being, you know, Pollyanna about that? I mean, it, it definitely, like you said, it really depends on the situation and the label. Like for example, my brother's band, when they signed with their label, it was a big indie label and, and they're really well established, but they treated us very well. They were Did very, they? oh yeah, they were very cooperative, understanding and helped a lot and gave, you know, was, was very supportive. There are other labels out there who are just all about the money and they're just, they don't care about you at all. And they're just going to take that back. <laughs> right. It's a shocker. Right. Uh, but it, it's, it's one of those situations that like you have to re as I said earlier, you have to kind of evaluate the people you're working with and like, how are they going to treat you? What's their reputation? Do they have a good reputation in the industry uh, yeah. for being fair and helping you out uh, in a real way? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, uh, one of the favorite things that I was reading is this house versus blueprint 
uh, thing. And I'd love for you to talk about that because there's, there's a little bit of confusion sometimes, even with people who've been in the business a long time, you know, the differences between the different revenue streams, for example, you know, your master and, and your publishing. Talk a little bit about this house versus blueprint, because I think you boil down something very complex into something digestible and simple. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I came up with that analogy several years ago because I used to give a lot of lectures on the music business. And I realized that a lot of my clients and just people I ran into in general just didn't understand the concept of a composition versus a master recording. They just couldn't wrap their head around it. So then I came up with this analogy to say, well, think of the musical composition as the blueprint to build a house. And then the sound recording is the finished house. And that's kind of why I explained you can do, you can make 500 houses from the same blueprint. Uh, that's a cover version. So uh, <laughs> uh, just to help conceptualize it a little bit easier um, for, for the artists, because, you know, like I said, it's not, it's not intuitive um, to think of, you know, you're a songwriter who makes compositions, but you're also a recording artist who makes sound recordings. So yeah, hopefully, I think it's been helpful to help uh, for people to look at it. That, that way. is the most simplified way I've ever heard that. But you could go explain that to someone who's never been in the music business. And they're like, oh, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well yeah. played, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Are, are, are there certain things that are still tripping? I don't know if tripping up that, that artists are signing in contracts that they shouldn't be. I mean, uh, you know, is, is there still a common thing where they're like, Oh, uh, you know, you're giving away something there that you don't need to be given away. You know, it's been buried in the, buried in a paragraph somewhere and nobody paid attention to it and 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 i'm assuming that this artist probably didn't have a lawyer on their side review it because mm. as sad as it is we know there's still a lot of artists out there that don't do that right are there common things that one or two common things that an artist should be looking at now you said obviously the terms and and the money those those are right up at the top but are there things that get buried into a contract that could catch that artist on the back end in a bad way that they're not paying attention to hmm that's a good question i mean they're, they're all there's, there's always little things that you know labels will try and sneak in there to um you know give themselves put themselves in a better position um, well, okay, there's this, this is a little bit boring, but hopefully I can make it interesting. Uh, basically, there's a part of every contract called the warranties and representations, where it says that the artist, anything the artist provides to the label in the recordings will not cause a lawsuit. It won't, they're not taking samples, they're not using, uh, you know, music without permission. Uh, and then they're indemnifying the label, which means that if there's a lawsuit, then they're technically um, obligated to defend the label against that lawsuit. Uh, usually that's a one-way street. Ideally, you want it to be a two-way street so that the label is guaranteeing that they're not going to do anything with ah, your music. They're not going to add no. anything to it that's going to cause a lawsuit. And if they do, then they need to defend you against that lawsuit. Usually, they just say they have warranties and representations for the artist, but not necessarily the label itself um, You know, regarding that outside material. So that's one thing you, know, you try and look out for and put it back in, put it in there if you see that contract. Do they still have those like controlled composition clauses where if you're writing, you're the artist, artists and you've written a certain percentage of the songs on there you get a reduced royalty rate is that still part of the game yeah unfortunately i actually just saw an indie contract i was looking at it yesterday for a client and they were saying they're not going to pay any mechanical royalties at all and it's all wrapped up and they were giving a 50 percent royalty rate on the artist side 
but they were saying, well, we're giving you this 50% rate, so we're not going to pay you any mechanicals at all uh, as a songwriter, which, you know, I said, look, you really want to push back on that, at least get the 75% rate. Um, you know, so it's still a thing where they're trying to get away with not paying those if they, can, if they can help it. Are, I always wonder, oh, go ahead, Michael. Go I was ahead. just going to say, are you running into artists that are afraid to push back because they feel like it's all or nothing? You know, if I push back, the label is going to pull this deal and I've got nothing now. So it's better to take it as it is than negotiate, which as we all know, a contract is all about negotiation. Everybody, right. you know, the label, the lawyers all go in understanding this is to be negotiated down to something slightly different. I mean, you, right. you know, I, I always tell a client, I'm like, you know, you start here and they start here and you're both hoping the other party is foolish enough to not push back, but you're both willing to meet right in the middle. You know where you're willing to go. Right. Are there still a lot of people that people meaning artists that just don't want to do that? They're just like, no, just let's just sign this. Let's just sign this. It depends on who you're dealing with, you know, um, because it really depends on the personality of the artists and how they are and how they approach these kinds of things. Some artists are just like, I'll sign whatever's put in front of me. I just want to get start making music and, you know, all that, which obviously I don't think is a great way to approach these things. Um, you know, but then there's other artists who are definitely a bit more, you know, um, business minded. And they're like, well, I don't mind walking away if I, if I have to, uh, because they're not going to get caught in a bad deal. I always tell people it's like dating, you know, if you don't, if you, if you see red flags and you keep on going, that's really on you. You need to really just kind of act on that. If you see problems, then, you know, they're not budging and they're being really difficult. That doesn't usually get better over time if you do sign with them. So if they're willing to be that, uh, I guess for calcitrant or, you know, sort of, um, just difficult. Uh, I can see where the artist might be turned off by that and they should walk away, but you know, sometimes they won't just because they're, they really just want to deal that badly. Yeah. I've seen a lot of artists who complain, for example, about streaming, they'll read something online and they'll say, well, these digital service providers aren't paying the artists enough. And I remind them that typically the DSPs pay the rights holders, not the artists and those contracts are really important and i guess what i'm getting at is do you see any older contracts trying to be used today that have things like breakage and maybe some of these old uh things in a boilerplate that you have to kind of go through and say wait a second that really doesn't uh apply today in a world where it's 80 85 streaming Right. Uh, exactly. Not, not so much anymore. Most labels nowadays have sort of gotten rid of breakage and stuff like that. They will say, we're not going to pay you on free goods. So if we're giving away free copies of the record, we're not going to pay you mechanicals on that. Um, but for the most part, it, especially they'll say, um, you know, streaming is not subject to any reduction deduction like that, basically breakage and blah, blah, blah. Any you know, fancy accounting tricks to try and give you less money. Um, yeah. Those are usually gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Have you been involved much, I, I would imagine you are, in education and explaining to your clients about all of the changes over the last few years with the Music Modernization Act, the MLC? I'm sure you're just, you know, knee deep in that stuff. Is that a big part of your kind of education process with your artists? Oh, yeah, definitely. If, if they want to know about it, I'll talk to them about it. Um, some people just don't, it gets a little bit uh, technical. So they're like, too far the overview. Needs. 
Yeah, yeah, they just want the overview. And even now I'm teaching uh, the music publishing class at Southwestern Law School. And we just talked about mechanicals uh, paid out on, you know, um, streaming services. And we went through the formula and I said, guys, this is really technical. Uh, honestly, the accountants and the administrators are going to have to deal with this. But as an attorney, you should at least have a broad understanding of what this is. Um, but yeah, it's pretty complicated. And so it depends on the appetite of the clients. And, you know, if they really want to know about this stuff, I'll go through it with them. Yeah, it, it does. It does seem to me that at, at a basic level, they should be educated on at least how the money flows. Right. You know, how it's actually determined, as you said, can get pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. But to Jay's point, just understanding that Spotify doesn't pay an artist, never has paid an artist. Spotify pays the rights holder. Right. And then the rights holder pays you. So your contract with your rights holder determines that amount of money. Yep. Not your, you have no contract with Spotify or Apple Music. Right. Typically. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, they'll pay out on the songwriting side, on the mechanicals and the public performance. But yeah, in terms of the recorded uh, income for the artists and stuff, that's going to go to the label and the label has to pay out the artist. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your six questions. It was a little bit hard for me to find, but I did, I did track it down. You're, you've got a podcast called Six Questions About the Music Biz, and I only got a chance to listen to one episode. I thought it was really great. Um, do you ask the same six questions each time? Tell us a little bit about your podcast. So yeah, that was just a short like six episode uh, podcast series I did. I'm not sure if I'm going to do more. Maybe I will. It's just talking to people in the music business and sort of getting their perspective. This, the questions aren't always the same. Uh, the first five are kind of tailored to the guest, but then the, the last one is always the same question. Like if you could go back and give your 16 year old self some advice, what would it be? And then it's kind of interesting to hear them, um, you know, talk about. Well, I would have told them this, you know, based on where I am now and what I've experienced. That's a great question. That's a Thanks. great question. Yeah, I mean, podcasts are—they're—they're uh, they're a little bit of work, and it sounds like you're—you you, know—you're kind of dipping your feet in, in a lot of these waters. But I love uh, most of all about the education, um, because it's something that uh, Michael and I believe in. You know, I work with USC and and UCLA music business programs and have for years, and I I find that when you're a little bit older and you've done a few things, you've got this knowledge base. And to speak to that question that you just mentioned, there are things that, you know, I can go back and say, well, you know, the 15 year old me or the 20 year old me, because I used to tour as an artist and there are mistakes that are made. And then there are things that don't apply today based on whether it's this new world of COVID, you know, that we're trying to get through and revive the touring industry and just the configuration that changes. But at the end of the day, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really hit home when I was reading your book, there's still a lot of this industry that's exactly the same as it was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And up until the Music Modernization Act, a lot of these rules, regulations, and laws have been in place for you know, decades, right? Yeah. Is that what you're finding too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Music Modernization Act, I think is a step in the right direction. Like you said, the collective um, is going to collect and distribute mechanical royalties from streamers. I think that's a great step forward because it kind of streamlines the process. So we're making, uh, you know, some steps along the way. And I think just the nature of the industry is completely changed anyway. I think from a business standpoint, I always tell my clients, look, you know, you don't need a record deal necessarily to make it nowadays. 
Uh, if you can make enough noise and get enough attention on your own, then that's really to your benefit. Then do a deal, then do a record deal. Get When you get to the point where you can possibly cannot do any more on your own, that's a good time to sign a deal because then you have leverage and then you have a following and then it makes sense. Get back in the day when I was growing up in the 90s, when I was a teenager in the 90s, it was like you needed a record label to put your stuff out. Otherwise, no one was going to hear it. So now everything is sort of different in that sense, but at the same time, it's, it, 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 it forces the artist to be more entrepreneurial um, or gives them the opportunity to be more entrepreneurial, which I think is a really great way. Then you can kind of control your own destiny a little bit. I agree with that 100%. I, there's a, a knock against labels that they're just a bank. I don't know if I, I believe that. I'm sure there's some labels like that, but I've worked with major labels my entire career and they're thoughtful people that get up in the morning thinking of ways to break and grow an audience uh, for an artist. And I've seen it happen time and time again. But at the end of the day, what is, I don't know the exact number, maybe you do, but like nine out of 10 artists that are signed to these major labels don't ever recoup. So they need to swing big and they need to draw, you know, put fuel on the fires that they have. And what you just described is build your own fire. And then yep. you'll be in demand and you'll have a lot more control over what happens, right? Right, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if you can get your own fire going, it's like, okay, it's time to bring in the gasoline from the label and really, you know, make it a big thing. Um, I think that, that's what it is. I, I think that the ones who make it, I mean, if you look at like Chance the Rapper and like, you know, Drake and those guys, they really did a lot on their own to really build their own fan base. And then when it was time to work with their label, it was like a real partnership because they brought so much to the table already um in terms of fan base and, and and fan engagement and putting music out uh yeah i think that's the best way to go also i say too like you know music nowadays is you know it's hard to just really make a lot of money just from music alone now yeah. i think a lot of artists really are looking toward other avenues like sponsorships in addition to their music i always say that look at rihanna you know she started her um makeup and and, and clothing company uh and she's making like hundreds of millions of dollars from that versus her music career but music was a great way to get her out there so i think i always tell clients look if you have bigger ambitions in business you know look at um you know what else do you like to do and then really build on that and make music a part of it great advice i mean it's more about being a brand and then lately um you know nfts have been uh, a big deal and experiences and all sorts of things but it comes right back to what you're saying whether you're selling water or you know whatever you're doing as an artist you're a larger brand uh when it comes to that and i think you need to think about that early on michael you were gonna ask yeah something? i was gonna ask a question um you know bringing bringing this back to where we are today with covid are you seeing or, or are you expecting to see contracts changing because of COVID, because of new terms or restrictions or commitments that have to be put in contractually that are related to not COVID specifically, but a pandemic, something like that? Yeah, I mean, definitely force majeure clauses have definitely become more <laughs> relevant nowadays. And, you know, force majeure in a, in a contract is basically a clause that says if it's an act of God or a pandemic or something like that earthquake, um, that um, the parties are usually excused from, from performance. So they don't have to perform under the contract because something happened that was out of their control. Uh, of course, there's a lot of force majeure popping up now in, in, in disputes because it's like, you okay. know, it's going to be in those contracts. But I think people are going to pay a lot more attention to how those are worded moving forward, um, just because 
you know, now we know that anything it, can happen. <laughs> is is force majeure something where, okay, you, you signed a deal with a label, you recorded the album, and, and, and we've seen this happen where now the label doesn't want to release the album because obviously their artists can't go out and tour. It's harder to promote it. So we're just going to sit on this and we're going to sit on this. And it's a year later, how much longer are we sitting on this? Is that something that is now being, you know, Oh, it's force majeure. We don't have to release this album. It was an act of God. You know, is, is that what you're starting to see? Uh, I mean, realistically, labels never obligated to release an album because, you know, they, they, they can always say, well, we didn't like it artistically and then they just shelf yeah, it basically. We've but, seen that. Yeah. but at the same time, uh, yeah, usually there's a force majeure saying like, well, um, if there's a something happens where it becomes commercially impractic impracticable or whatever to release the album, then basically the term of the contract is automatically extended to match, uh, you know, the length of whatever is going on. Um, so it really depends on how it's approached and drafted. Um, I think right now, even artists, I mean, most likely they probably don't even want their music released now. Like you said, they can't really uh, tour to support it. Um, I think that's the best time to tour is, of course, is to support an album or something. Um, so I think things are just sort of on pause now on both sides anyway. I mean, I can't really see artists saying you got to put it out now, even though, you know, it, it'll be hard to get out there and, and, and get a get in front of an audience. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what what you love doing. Um, I, I had read something about your passion for starting uh, startups like record companies, yeah. for example, to talk a little bit about that. What, what lights you up in the morning? Well, it's funny because I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a record producer. That was like the main thing. And but then I realized I didn't really have the talent for that as the time <laughs> went on. Uh, so I said, let me get in on the business side. And I just love the creative process. I love, and I also have a real entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. And so I got that from him. And so uh, I, I really just love building companies. And I think it's really fun and interesting to start record labels and help them sign artists and, you know, just try and, you know, put something together because it's just, you know, where art meets commerce. And I think it's a really interesting place to be. That's, that's great. Let, let me ask you about socials and streaming numbers. A lot of the industry today is based on data. And we were talking to an A&R rep one time on the show and we asked him with all this data, how are you signing artists? And he said, this is pre COVID. He said, you know, I look for that lineup around the block, right? right? You look for that passion in your business. Are you looking at sales streams, downloads, the commerce side? Are you looking at social footprint? How important is data to your day-to-day -day work? Uh, I mean, for me, I'm on the legal side, especially. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I work with Janet Jackson, so she's obviously got a ton of <laughs> followers. And so in, in terms of negotiating her contracts, it doesn't really become as relevant because she's got a reputation already. Uh, but even again, in, in terms of, uh, you know, even a smaller indie artist, um, you know, I guess it is kind of helpful in the sense that like, well, this person has this many followers, so let's try and push a little bit more and get more out of the label, um, you know, a little bit more money, a little bit more support commitment on the marketing side. When you're doing a deal like with a new artist, are you pushing that data as why they should get a bigger advance? Uh, sometimes, sometimes yeah. that can be the case. A lot of times though, if the label is kind of savvy, they'll sort of understand that and sort of bake it in and say like, okay, well, you have this many followers. So, you know, we'll give you a little bit more money on this side to help you out. Because um, ultimately, like, like you said, you know, a good label wants to help. They want to, they want the artist to be successful. So, 
they're not looking to hamstring the artist. Uh, and if there is something going on there, they're going to want to help as much as they can. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the uh, things. So, I mean, I'm, I don't find myself really having to push that on them. It's more like they kind of understand the value there generally. But um, if I have to push it on them and, and <laughs> force them to see why they're being difficult, then like I said, that's maybe not a good situation for the artist. In, in, in relation to the data, are you also working to protect who actually owns and can use that data? You know, if, if while you're signed to the label and the label is doing a website for you, who owns the domain name? What happens when the label deal ends? What happens to all the email addresses that are gathered into an email list? Mm -hmm. Who can, can the label use them without asking permission? If the deal ends, do they have to, you know, are, are you baking that sort of stuff in as well? Usually, typically, the label's going to want to own the data they collect because they're like, well, we're paying for it so that we, you know, we want to collect this stuff. Um, so, you know, maybe if the artist wants it, we'll try and ask, say, like, hey, we want access to that information as well. Also, when the deal expires or terminates, I usually say, well, the artist will get the domain name back at least. Um, but sometimes they'll say, no, we built it, but you can go start your own separate one or whatever. So it really depends on the label and what they, if they see the value or not, if they want That's to That's important, on. right? I mean, they oh, you yeah. need to have those conversations up front because if you're an artist, you want to own your domain and your social handles and all of that. I know a lot of labels that control that and right. they control the socials, the, the messaging, the website, all of that to Michael's point. Um, that's definitely something you want to have those early conversations about. Is there anything else that you can think of that you really want to make sure that is on the table when you're talking to a label about negotiating a deal for one of your artists? Are there some early things like that that you want to put on the table and just have the conversation about? Um, you know, like you said, since social media is so big now, that that's definitely a focus uh, and, and trying to re retain control of that. Um, you know, I guess it also too, it's, it's just the creative. I mean, this has always been an issue, but creative control, of course, I mean, the label's never going to give a hundred percent creative control to the, to the artist, but you're going to want to try and at least put in their meaningful consultation rights or something. So they're not being forced in a direction. I had a, I had a client who she's a, you know, she's an independent uh, singer, but she has a following online, a pretty solid following. And, uh, she's dealt with a bunch of, um, producers and labels in the past who were just trying to push her around and push her in different directions. And she's now she's super wary about like who she works with because she doesn't want them to try and put her in a box. So it's not, you're never going to get full control, but uh, you know, you try and get at least some triggers in there and say, okay, well, you know, we'll at least listen to you and give you meaningful consultation rights on the producers that are chosen and songs and so forth um, so that you're not getting pushed around. But again, you know, this comes back to who you're dealing with and if they understand where you're coming from and where you want to go with your, your music and not trying to force you in a direction you don't want to go in. Yeah. Well, there, there's so many, so many questions I, I would love to ask you and we don't, we don't have all day, but I did want to ask you something outside of music. Um, you were on one of my favorite shows. You were on Jeopardy, right? I was. Yeah. yeah. I would love to know how the sausage is made there. What was that experience like? And this is when uh, Alex Trebek was still alive, correct? Right. Yeah. He was the host. Uh, I, 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 um, my episode aired on September 30th of last year and we taped it in early August. So yeah, he was, it was one of the, towards the end. Yeah. One of his last shows. That he did. What was that experience like? I mean, being in front of, I would imagine 
you know, all of the lights and the cameras and having to, because when I'm at home and I'm sitting there, man, I can hit pause on my remote and just think, you know, I can do whatever. And it's, it's a lot of fun, right? My wife and I love playing Jeopardy, but when you're there and you've got three people who are jamming at that buzzer, what was that like? Oh man, it was like an out of body experience for me, honestly. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, first of all, I've watched Jeopardy since I was a kid. So just meeting Alex Trebek would have been a huge thing yeah. on its own, much less having to play a game that he was running, right? Um, it was just, yeah, with the lights and everything and standing and Trebek was there and the podiums and it was just so surreal. Even when I think about it now, it's like a fever dream or something. It's so weird, um, but it was really cool. And it, like you said, to the, the buzzers, um, I knew about the buzzers and like, so I tried to practice with like a pen, you know, like uh -huh. when, when I was um, practicing at home. Is it similar to a pen? No, not at all. And that's, no. uh, that was one of my problems. It was, it's much, it's chunkier and sort of like, um, I don't even know, like a, like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the end of a whip, you know, it's like a thick kind of thing. And there's like a button on the top and you have to really mash it. And it just isn't really comfortable to hold. So you, part of it, the beginning for me was trying to figure out how to hold this thing in a comfortable way and like ring in. Um, and then, um, yeah. And the way it works too, is if you ring in before the question is done being asked, you get locked out for a quarter of a second. That so doesn't you sound like a lot, but if everybody else is hitting their, that's probably screws you for that question. Right. Exactly. So that's the thing you have to, and there are these lights that kind of light up on the side of the board to show you when it's time, but it's honestly, it doesn't help. Oh. You have to really just watch and just see the last word and like, and then boom, immediately after it's really, it's, it's difficult because a lot of, there's a bunch of, you know, questions I knew the answers to, but I just couldn't get in on time. So that, that was a tough part of it as well. <laughs> that's amazing. That is so great. Yeah, it was That's it was awesome. one of those uh, weird and, it, you know, sad, too, because it was during COVID. So my, my family couldn't come. My wife couldn't come. Oh, see me. Okay. Just me and I had to have masks on, like um, have a mask on during um, they put us in the, in the holding area was in the Wheel of Fortune audience area next door to the studio. Gotcha. And we all have to be socially distanced. But yeah, nobody. My mom couldn't be there. Like it was a real bummer. Was there any banter from Alec or Beck? like um between commercial breaks or any of that stuff did he ever you know was there any any of that stuff going on or was it just strictly business it was just all business i mean he he honestly toward at that time he didn't i mean in between he really turned it on for the camera but when i saw him in between he looked just you know like an older tired guy you know and, yeah. and you could tell it was you know he was having a tough uh tough time with it uh just you know getting through it and um but i i but it was amazing the camera came on and he was just like ready to go so it was really what a, yeah. what a pro. Well, listen, um, to be, before we let you go, I, talk a little bit about you've you've had some work with USC, uh, their music business program, which I think is absolutely fantastic. What was your level of in, involvement there? Well, I've, I've talked over there a couple of times. I've given some lectures over there. And as I said, I, you know, I attended USC. I, I did the music industry program. So that was, that's what my degree is in. Uh, I actually spoke at the law school a couple of times too. Um, I'm actually supposed to speak there again uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so, you know, I definitely, you know, I've been a little bit involved there. I'd like to get more involved since it's my alma mater. So, yeah. um, you know, hopefully in the future, if it goes on, you know, I'll do some more. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, where can people find out uh, more about the book? Where can people find out more about you? Where can they uh, where can they reach you, Kamal? Sure. Yeah. Um, so if you look, at, it's on, it's on Amazon. That's usually where uh, people are buying it from. Uh, straightforward guide to the music biz, or you can search my name, Kamal K A M A L. Last name is Moo M O O. Also, I have an author website, uh, KamalAndrew.com. <clears throat> that's K A M A L. 
A-N-D-R-E-W.com. And that has links to the ebook and, um, and, and to uh, Amazon as well. Plus it has links to my podcast. So you can check it out there. Do you have an audio version yet? I, I'm thinking about it. Dude, you um, got to do it. I listen to audiobooks every morning when I walk. I mean, I read this because it's, it's such a easy, quick read, but I, you could narrate it. You know, you could crack jokes. Yeah, and I'm thinking about it. I mean, because people have asked me about that, too. And I know that, um, you know, audiobooks are definitely a big thing now. So, uh, you know, so far, you know, the book's been doing pretty decent and uh, doing pretty awesome. well. And so uh, I'm like, I might follow it up with an audiobook because I think, yeah, I'll you know, make it easy, more accessible. Yeah. Well, great job on the book, man. We, we really enjoyed uh, reading it and talking about it. It's things that Michael and I talk about week in and week out. And I just love how you took something really complex and simplified it so people can understand it. So kudos to you. And, and thanks so much for Thank joining you. us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. All right. All the best. Discmakers.com. Use code FREEBIZ for ground shipping on CD orders of 100 units or more, $150 value. Uh, I, I love the fact that, as you pointed out, he took a book that could be this big right, and got it down to this big, and it still is very important, meaningful, and educational. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I first got the book in the mail, I was thinking, this is it? That's it? Because we're used to these big, thick, you know, music industry, law type things. And what I love about it is a lot of times you don't need the history on everything. You don't need yes. all the minutiae. You just need to know, like, what does this mean? You know, just explain to me in a couple of paragraphs what this means. This is the book for you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and you know, again, right or wrong, we're dealing with lots of people who just don't want to or don't have the time to further learn and educate themselves so they you know they see a book this thick and it's just immediately a turn off exactly it sits on their shelf and they never read it yeah exactly exactly i mean it it is so important that you get educated on this i mean you're you're going to sign a contract and you would be foolish not to know what you're signing and what the the terms are in there because you know eventually sadly you will probably come across somebody who's going to assume you're not going to look at the contract in great detail and they're going to put something in that contract that could hurt you yeah yeah we've seen it time and time again throughout the uh, history of music you need to have a good music industry attorney but I think what you're alluding to is that's not enough. That's great that you have that, but you need to educate yourself. So you know, you need to, to ask know what the to right ask. questions. Yeah. You need to know what to ask because again, it, it, you know, these contracts are all negotiations. The other party would probably be more than happy to yeah. redline and cross out that section. If you ask, if you don't ask, you don't that's, it, it is what it is. They'll take that's it. Right it benefits them. So yeah, you've got to, you've got to know those basics. You've got to, you know, especially with the way this industry is changing. Yeah. You know, how does this contract deal specifically with streaming and, you know, stuff we were talking about what happens to my domain name? What happens to my Facebook page? What happens yeah. to the email list? 
you know, a, a lot of times it's not so much one person owning it and keeping it solely to themselves, but it's a shared ownership. That's right. You it's both, so you, 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 you both get ownership of your email list, but maybe you put something in there that says the label has to at least alert me when they're going to use my email list. So you know what's going on. And this is so important, even if you have a very trusted A&R person or a very trusted label that's run by your friends, it's still important because down the road, people leave companies. People leave. Yep. It could be somebody that's never met you before and all they have to go on is what's in that contract. No handshake deals, no conversations are going to come up. So this is really crucial. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So yeah, do yourself a favor. Check out, check out the book. Yep. Um, before we wrap up, just a quick thank you to Bruce and Hypebot. Thanks, Bruce. Bands in Town, Band Zoogle, and Disc Makers. Thank you for everything you do to support us week in and week out. And, uh, you know, if you've got a product or a service and you're looking to reach, uh, reach our audience, hit us up. We'd be happy to talk to you as well. Um, if you are watching us on YouTube, subscribe, follow us on Spotify. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. I sent you that real quick. I sent you that article that Spotify is about to overtake Apple yeah, and podcasting. That. that is huge. Big That's yeah. big. That was one of the podcasts and Apple were the thing that everybody was just like, it's always number one. It's always number one. Well, you know, and I could, I can tell you between both of the podcasts that I do here, iTunes is not the number one destination for listeners. Actually, it's YouTube. Yeah. You, I get more listeners for both podcasts on YouTube than I will anywhere else. Yeah. Spotify is number three. iTunes is number two. But Spotify, even in my numbers, is moving so fast. It's growing. Yeah. And people don't realize that YouTube is the number one streaming service, not Spotify. And I'm not talking about looking at videos. I'm talking about listening to music and obviously listening to podcasts. It's a place where people go. So don't discount uh, YouTube, but it's an end of an era. You see that the, you know, Spotify is catching up to and surpassing in so many different ways. They're innovating, they're buying up companies, they're making it a priority, um, but it's still early in the space, so we'll see how it, this it, it goes. is. It's just it's exciting to see the space evolving and changing, and it's it should only be good for everybody that if Spotify overtakes Apple, maybe that forces Apple to start innovating and getting creative and not sitting back on their laurels and thinking we're the mighty Apple. I mean, listen, I'm a huge Apple fan, so are you, Jay, but. Mm-hmm. You know, we can also sit here and realistically say there's stuff that they just sit back and take for granted. We calls them as we sees them. Yep. Yep. So anyway, um, just subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. It means a lot to us. And uh, that's it. Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I think we got two shows next week, actually. Yeah. It's going to be a good week. And one of them is going to be really timely. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yes. Um, So that's it. We'll see everybody next week.